1: Freaked you out. Like <laughs> looked over and took a breath, and you're
0: like, <gasps> "Hi, everyone, and welcome to the JCN Clinic Podcast Show." I'm Jessica, and I'm Carissa, and today we have a special guest with us. And Carissa and I are fizzing because we get to nerd out hardcore. Mm-hmm. We have with us Dr. Elena Preble, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes, that's perfect. Well <laughs> and today we have her here excitingly to talk to us all things gut microbiome, but specifically, we'll be talking a lot about the um, microba testing. So, there's been a lot of talk about that recently between our gut package that we've been offering and a lot of our social So, I think a lot of people listening will be familiar with mm-hmm. microba. Yep. Um, But yeah, just to get started, we'd love to uh, have you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, just a bit about ground, a little bit about where you come from and how that fits in with Microba.
2: Wonderful, yeah. So I'm the senior scientist at Microba and my background is, actually initially I was studying stress physiology, that's what I did my PhD in, Hmm. but then I've kind of migrated over about the last five years into studying the human gut microbiome and have kind of retrained myself as a microbiologist over the last five years. So it's a really exciting area. Um, I have to say that I never would have dreamed 15 years ago that I was going to be studying, you know, poop all the time. (laughs) But it is, you know, really just this area of research has just been exploding. And it's just so exciting. And the potential to do so much good for everyone's health is just amazing. And so this is an area Mm. I couldn't be more passionate about now. And I'm just very happy to have gotten the opportunity to transition into this world of human poop and
0: microbes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. I feel like deviating already. Like if you've got a background in stress physiology and mm. obviously the the up and coming, you know, connection between the gut and the brain and the adrenal axis would be something exactly. that's a bit, bit of interest on the side for <laughs> you <Yes. me> then.
2: <laughs> that will be really interesting. There's already yeah. quite a bit of research yeah. looking at exactly the the HPA, the the hypothalamic pituitary axis mm. and how that's affecting, you know, the production of those cortical steroids or affecting production of microbes and i'm not going to go off on that
0: tangent. yeah <laughs> i'm sorry. So mental mental as we go okay also um just out of interest like are you are you physically in the oh, don't worry, don't about, worry it. about it <laughs> i'd say we'd edit it out but i still can't be bothered we had a fire alarm the other day. <laughs>
1: we can deal with anything after a fire
0: alarm um i'm interested though in yeah you're in in the lab yourself like are you physically in the lab like getting the samples and analysing the samples? Or are you actually more um, like taking the data that comes from that and then analysing the data?
2: So I'm a little bit more on the office side. Um, yep. In my past life, when I was doing my PhD in postdocs, yep. I was solely laboratory-based. But now yep. I've actually really... And mostly in the office, which is probably why I like it so much. Because I imagine yeah. if I had to actually deal with the poo on a daily basis, yeah. I might not have such a love affair with it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. But, um,
2: yeah, so really what I do now is really trying to stay on top of all of that research, translating it so that mm. people can understand, like for a layman audience, so that mm. people can really understand how this research is progressing and how that mm. might influence, you know, their what they're doing in their daily lives and basically just trying to help people become as well-informed as possible. So I develop a lot of the science content now Mm -hmm. for um, our company. And I'm also kind of trying to see where the new research is going and how that can impact the different areas of our company. So a really strong arm of our company is research. We're trying to understand how the gut microbiome is actually influencing our health and different diseases Mm -hmm. and what are the mechanisms behind that and so we're really seeing now with the research is a lot of new methods coming out to be researching that a lot of new um, correlations a lot of new mechanisms and so Mm -hmm. being able to incorporate that into our existing research program so that we're always really staying at the forefront of what's going on. Mm. I feel like you have like a the dream job <laughs> it is actually i have to say i can't tell you how many times the last couple years
1: i've been saying that to myself and i don't know how i got so lucky because oh my god like just imagine being at the forefront of all the research yeah. so I, speak, I feel like i think there's someone told me a stat the other day on the amount of gut research coming through daily so it'd be such a, a minefield of stuff it's I'm sure. incredible wow. i mean
2: i actually had to look this up for something i was writing recently and it was like back in 2005 there's maybe 23 papers a month coming out yep. on mm. the gut microbiome and just last year, twenty eighteen, we have over four hundred and fifty papers a month coming out. Wow! So just it's just a massive growth. explosion. Yeah. Yes, yes. Wow. it's so exciting. Oh, oh it is, and oh. I think it's
0: something that I know um, all of us, um, Chris and I, talk about a lot. Really, just thrive for like being with clients day to day um you know you're trying to kind of cram in outside of that as much as you can and find the best podcast to listen to and like the best articles because it's like i have this narrow window of time like where can yeah. i get the best of the best exactly. and if you listen to a podcast that wasn't what you wanted there's like this sense yeah. of anger that it's taken
1: away. i just feel let down yeah, i'm yeah. like let me down guys <laughs> yes. yeah so
0: all right shall we dive into some of these meaty questions i think so let's do it do you want to go first can't or or you can't, brain okay brain. all right well, yeah, <laughs> i want put you on the spot then so one of the questions we have is how the gut microbiota is involved in food processing and managing inflammation um and how our understanding has changed based on all the new advances in research. I know that's a pretty big question um, because we're looking at the food processing and managing of inflammation. So we're kind exactly. of dealing with two different aspects there. So, so, so maybe I'll break that yeah. up.
2: <laughs> just to kind of about the food processing part first. Yeah. And I think it's good just to make sure everyone's on the same page about sure. how that actually works. And so um, in case, you know, I'm sure a lot of people already realize this, but, you know, when we consume food most of those nutrients are actually going to be absorbed by our small intestines. Mm -hmm. And basically, the little bits that aren't digested by our small intestines then get passed to our colon, Mm -hmm. where they're available for the gut microbiome to process it. And just in case people aren't quite certain what a gut microbiome is, when I refer to that, I'm actually talking about that community of microorganisms. And that's mostly bacteria, but it can also be fungi, viruses, and even sometimes, um, like eukaryotic parasites mm-hmm. that are living in your gut. Mm-hmm. And so, that whole community of microbes down there is called our gut microbiome. And when the food that our body can't absorb um, gets passed down to our colon, that's the food that they're using for their fuel sources to basically grow and thrive. Mm-hmm. Now, the food that gets passed down there is really going to be primarily fiber. Mm-hmm. So, those are the undigestible carbohydrates that our body can't use. And usually, that's just, and I'll get a little little bit in the weeds. It's usually because Mm -hmm. there's specific bonds. Um, Carbohydrates are different sugar molecules held together by different bonds. And sometimes those bonds are too difficult. Our body doesn't produce the enzymes to break Mm -hmm. those bonds. And so it passes down to our colon. And then our gut microbes have the ability to produce thousands of different enzymes. And they usually have the ability to break those bonds and then use the sugar molecules in that carbohydrate as an energy source. Mm -hmm. Now, besides fiber, um, the other Um, food item that will often get passed to our colon is when we eat excess protein. Mm -hmm. So for the most part, our body can absorb a lot of protein, but especially like people that are doing the the high protein, low-carb diets, Mm -hmm. they tend to have a huge, a much higher intake of protein, and your body can only absorb so much. Mm -hmm. And so the excess protein that isn't absorbed gets passed to your colon as well. Mm -hmm. And so really, our gut microbes are feasting on the fiber and that excess protein. And then what happens is if you're not actually feeding your gut microbes enough fiber or they're not getting any protein from your diet, then they're actually going to start looking for other sources of energy. And another good source of energy that is in our gut is actually that mucus that lines our intestines. And so that's basically a protein that has a bunch of sugar molecules around it. And so a lot of microbes just love that as their energy source. And if they can't find fiber and they can't find protein, they're going to go to eat that as well. Mm And some consumption of that is good because we do have a regular mucus turnover in our gut. But if it gets to be too overwhelming where you get too many bugs that only eat mucus, mm-hmm. then you need to start worrying because sometimes that can start spinning out that mucus layer. And mm-hmm. that mucus layer is really important as acting as a barrier between all the microbes in our gut and our intestinal cells. When that barrier gets to be, as sometimes people call it, leaky, mm-hmm. we start to get a lot more problems such as inflammation. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, so that's the food processing benefit. <laughs> I've got like a thousand questions I want to throw at you. <laughs> can I just ask, I might be deviating down the list a little bit, but I know that was a big question we started with, but there's there's certain presentations that we see when we're testing that can really um, highlight some of the processes you talked about. So the extra, like the higher protein intake in the diet, for instance, um, what would you say would be uh, an, a sort of presentation of that in testing that we might see?
2: So if you're doing the microbiota test, one of the mm-hmm. really neat things that we can actually measure is the number of genes that are present in your gut microbiome that can break down fiber and the number of genes that are mm-hmm. present that can break down protein. And so that can actually be a really good indicator of what your community is looking like. You really want to have preferentially, you know, a lot more bugs down there breaking down fiber than ones breaking down protein. And so that can be a good indicator that, you know, if it's getting out of balance there, that maybe you should think about doing some adjustments to your diet. And usually it means adding in more fiber because Mm. people, for the most part, are lacking in fiber in their diet.
0: Yeah, Yeah. for sure. No, I was going to say, I know um, from using stool testing ongoingly, that one of the things that we see a lot is um, a very higher or skewed level of bacteroides as a phylum. Generally, when someone's on more of a higher protein-based diet and maybe more high fat as well, like it's a very, very common presentation that we see. And then certain, I'll also say certain strains within other phylums as well that tend to pop up. Um, that classically we see when someone's really relying on a higher protein and, and also a bit more of a sort of high fat intake diet. Would you say the same?
1: Yeah, yeah, like have, even some even some of them like within the famicudis, but and yeah. some of the other ones. But like typically, I suppose too, because some of the things I guess we see a lot that and it's probably a bit of a blanket statement, but yeah. like say a lot of the probably lower carb, higher protein, high meat based protein diets yes, that yep. cause like I'm I'm just going to throw it out there and say damage to the gut a bit yeah. in terms of like people have been on these sort of restrictive diets and all of a sudden they want to bring carbohydrates back in and they, they struggle with them or they just start tolerating less and less foods um, you know, vegetables and everything like that. So and then when you do kind of the stool testing, what we're starting to see as a trend because of this is um yeah, like like more higher numbers and higher numbers of these bacteria that primarily feed on protein mm-hmm. or protein degraders mm-hmm. and then lower numbers of these ones that are your fibre yeah. degraders. Yeah. So That's- is that kind of
2: yeah, it's a common thing because it's—it's really you yeah. know it comes down to that common thing that everybody often says: you are what you eat. And exactly. if you're feeding your gut only protein, you're gonna get blooms of those protein-degrading mm. bacteria species and. Mm-hmm. If you're feeding your gut more fiber, Mm. then you're giving those fiber-degrading species more of a chance
0: to grow. Mm. And I think one of the reasons maybe we have both latched onto that is because we do see with so much focus in the media on keto diets and paleo, particularly keto at the moment, there's this high consumption of protein and fats and protein Mm. and fats. And we unfortunately see the detriment of that to the gut from a symptom picture. But then we see these presentations in testing as well. So you know as you mentioned protein um you know it has it obviously it has a role. It does fuel certain um families within within the gut um, as far as fermentation, but there's a limit to that. Like, is it, if you're, if you're putting too much in there, um, to use your words, there's that bloom. <laughs> I love <Yes>. that. But of course it can occur. And, uh, I always say to my clients, it's like, you're, you're feeding certain families or certain strains exactly. up. And I, I often use the analogy, it's like a room where you've kind of got like this crowded room, like a, a full party. And those undergrowth strains are like trying to get in, but they can't get through the door. <laughs> 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 so the diet, obviously we use that to kind of get some of those guys out so the undergrowth guy, little ribbon mm-hmm. can make his in and he
1: can bloom. So can <laughs> have we a few ca- drinks and party. Can we call them the band geeks? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. The band geeks.
1: The band geeks, de- geeks want to get in and what they what the cool kids don't realise is they need the band geeks, right? Like yeah. <laughs> But I think that kind of throws us into the next section as well. Like obviously um, and just what we were even talking about mm. before we flicked the microphones on is that you know, like you know, five to ten years ago, we had this understanding of why you know we really need to fuel our gut microbiome with you know resistant starches and fibers and you know different types of carbohydrates and this really you know diverse you know fiber types of you know vegetables and fiber containing foods, but we couldn't actually see a lot of it in testing, could we? Up until like the last couple, mm-hmm. of, up until the last couple of years, like we had we had you know culture based testing which didn't really break things down to that species and phylum level. And we didn't have the understanding, too, of the species and what they were doing in terms of, you know, Mm -hmm. fiber degraders and protein degraders. So I think it's really cool how much testing has evolved in the last few years and now like what we have kind of been trying to say for years in terms of what we know serves the gut or we think has served the gut is now actually starting to show true in what we can see in tests and research, yeah? So do you want to maybe just give a – probably, and you're going to do it much better than us, but um, like a bit of a kind of like just a run through and how much the testing has evolved and what we were looking at, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, and what we can look at now. Yeah, mm. sure.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so this has just been an incredible area of growth. And this is really why I think the gut microbiome has received so much attention in the last five years is because these testing methods have been advancing so dramatically. Um, so as you mentioned, Carissa, yeah, I mean, prior to like 20 years ago, we really just had culture-based testing available. And that was really where, you know, you're taking a sample and you're sticking it into a growth medium and you're seeing what's growing. Um, For the longest time, um, people mostly thought we were inhabited more by pathogens because typically what's going to grow in the presence of oxygen are the more pathogenic types of bacteria because they really like oxygen or they're what we call facultative anaerobes where... They can survive where there's low oxygen, mm. but if there's a little bit of oxygen, they're going to do really well. And something that we've now learned about most of the, the good guys that live in our gut is they're, um strict anaerobes, which mm-hmm. means they can't handle any oxygen in our gut at all. And as soon as some oxygen starts you know, leaking into our gut, then they're not going to be doing so well growth-wise. And these other bacteria, like the pathogenic type, are going to be able to take a greater foothold and start out competing the good guys. And so... That's, and that's what we were seeing then when we were growing stuff up in culture is that you're like, oh man, we're mostly, you know, dominated by like E. coli, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. and like some of these these guys that, you know, we really don't want to have in our gut. Mm-hmm. But then as testing methods evolved, we started being able to use DNA to look at who's in our gut as opposed to just seeing what's going to grow in a plate. We started seeing, wow, there's a lot more diversity here than mm-hmm. we ever suspected. And then that DNA technology really started to advance that first um, it was very expensive, and so we were just really looking at tiny snippets of DNA. Uh, most of the time, DNA sequencing today, as we know it, is is using just a very small portion of a single gene that kind of acts as a fingerprint to identify broad groups of bacteria called um, at the genus level. So, like, you could identify, okay, you've got, you know, bacteroides mm. and, you know, maybe... Focale bacterium, but you know that like in bacteroides, bacteroides, there might be hundreds of different species. Mm. So it mm. couldn't get down to that high level resolution, but it could still give us a really good picture of what was in the gut and really showed us there's so much more diversity than we ever suspected. And that became a lot cheaper to do because DNA sequencing costs have dropped. And now everybody's doing you know this marker gene analysis where they're seeing, okay, what's in here? Because it's really cheap. Now what's happened is that because DNA sequencing costs have dropped even more, we're actually able to afford to be able to look at the entire genome Mm. in a bacteria. And why this is important is because until we actually grow a species in the lab, we really have no idea what it's capable of doing. Mm. You can put an identity on it with a marker gene analysis, but you're not going to be able to have any clue as to what it's actually doing in your gut. And so one thing, by looking at the entire genome in a bacteria, you really get the blueprint of what that bacteria is capable of doing. Because you have all of those genes that are producing all these different proteins, and you can actually identify, oh wow, this bacteria mm-hmm. has the gene to produce the short chain fatty acid butyrate, or this one has the gene to produce hydrogen sulfide. And so now you're going to be able to start putting together a picture of where that bacteria might actually be fitting And what role it's playing in Mm. your gut microbiome. And it's still important to know that um, until those bacteria are actually grown in the lab and actually proven to produce those products, we don't really know Mm. if they are producing it. So we don't know if those genes are being utilized. But at least we know that they have the potential to produce that product. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that's where it's really coming now is that, you know, like we've just gotten to the point where now, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, We don't need to grow things in the lab. We can actually see what these bacteria are capable of doing just by looking at their genome. Mm -hmm. But in the end, it's kind of interesting. We are coming full circle because now we realize now we need to prove that what we see in the genome is actually happening. Mm. And so now we're going back and trying to culture those bugs in the lab to prove it. But the neat thing is is because we have their genome, we know like, okay, well, this one's probably using these specific types of sugar as a fuel source and they Mm -hmm. can't use these other sugars as a fuel source. So now we can actually direct how we culture it yeah. and using the information from the genome we can be much more accurate at actually being able to culture specific types of microbes yeah. so, so it's amazing i'm
1: like so excited i feel like i have goosebumps i oh. can't <laughs> wait to see what happens in the next few I know. years
0: yeah i think also one of the things i find really fascinating too which um really highlights is um, as you've just talked about, the, you're looking at all the species um, in regards to say a, a, a family or a phylum, and something like which I was just making some notes on for myself, like *Fecal Bacterium Praxnitio, Right, like it gets, it's one of those strains that gets a lot of attention. Um, I've heard and read a lot of great stuff about it, but when you when you start to see it on testing. Um, often I'll see a result come back and it's really high and I think that what that's highlighting to me is the importance then of looking beyond just a species and looking at all the different strains so when I look at a microbiota test that's what I see is we have all these different strains right so you can have these different arms <laughs> that can go off and behave in different ways. And um, I know like without sort of looking at it in that way, if I was just to go, all right, there's this fecal bacterium in I know that it's a good thing. Um, I've read all this great stuff about it. So if I see it high on a test, I'm not going to worry about it because it's a good guy. I've, I love that this extra research that's coming out allows me to look at that in more detail and go, well, actually, no, we're, we're dealing with all of these different arms that are coming off and, and we might be going down a completely different pathway just because yeah. of something that's such a minor little shift in how it behaves. Yeah,
2: no, that's absolutely true. Yeah. So when you're looking at a lot of species um, so and actually I hate to do this but um, so with the fecalibacterium bacterium yeah there are a lot of different strains of it yeah. and the microbiota test at this point is only doing species level we're yeah. not able to get the strain yep. but what you see on our test is that we actually have identified three different species of Fecali bacteria uh, okay. yep, yep. so um, we're using one of the latest bacterial classification methods um, yep. in the past bacterial classification was kind of a mess people we're mostly relying on yeah. just that small bit of the marker gene or yeah. what the bacteria looked like yeah. or what enzymes it could produce to classify it. Yeah. And that isn't always giving you all the information you need. So a lot of times, um, I'll just do a real quick example, like yeah. um, Clostridium difficile. That's one that a lot of people might be familiar with because it's, it causes you know, people to have a lot of diarrhea and it's not mm-hmm. very pleasant. Um, people didn't really know where to classify it, so they just dumped it into the genus Clostridium. And mm-hmm. Clostridium has really been a dumping ground for scientists when they don't know how to classify a bacteria that has these similar qualities. Mm-hmm. And now what we found with new classification methods is that like that Clostridium difficile doesn't actually belong to the genus Clostridium. That, through DNA sequencing, it actually has a different enough DNA sequence that it should be in its own genus. Yeah, and right. so it was recently renamed to Clostridioides, Wow. And we're seeing that with a lot of the taxonomy. Now that this DNA sequencing is more widely available, we're ab- actually able to reclassify things correctly yep. as opposed to just kind of dumping things when we didn't yep. quite know where it belonged. And so with Pocalli bacterium what's actually happened is, is that people have just been lumping a lot mm. of these Pocalli bacteriums into the species prosnitzii, but when you look at the DNA sequence, you actually see that there's enough difference that we can actually split it into. Three different species. So they're
0: okay, that's interesting. So they're actually different species. They're actually different yes, species. Okay, yeah. Wow. And each of those species yeah. still encompasses several yeah.
2: different strains. Right. And so it's, it's, it's God, really the getting down just, to this time. level. just like through
0: the tree further. It <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
2: so it's kind of like the bacterium is like a genus grouping, and then yeah, right. the Crosniti is a species level grouping. And then below that, you'll have strain-level groupings. And usually strains are kind of named as, like, numbers or letters. Yeah. So, like, in in Focalibacterium prosnetiae, there's, like, strain A26, which is a really Mm well-studied one. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so it's it's very complicated sometimes. But Mm -hmm. what we do see is even within those three species groupings of prosnetiae, that they do have different roles. Mm -hmm. And so um, most bacteria... They all are going to differ, even at the species level and at the strain level. They're mm-hmm. going to have different genes, which mm-hmm. means that the same species can be playing multiple roles mm-hmm. in your body, um, depending on which strain of that species you have. Mm-hmm. And in the case of coli* bacterium, if you have species A, it's going to be playing a slightly different role to species B mm-hmm. versus species C. Mm-hmm. And what we know is like the Prasnitsiae C. That's the one that um, has had a lot of the research done on it. It encompasses mm-hmm. the strain a 26 which has been shown to be a very, has a, it has a, um, a type of DNA regulator that allows it to produce butyrate at mm-hmm. fairly high levels. Um, it also produces an anti-inflammatory protein. They call it um, MAM. But anyway, mm-hmm. I won't go into the into that too much. But anyways, it produces <laughs> a lot of beneficial molecules yeah. that is really, you know, seems to help. Improve gut health. Mm-hmm. And Fecali bacterium A and B, they're both butyrate producers as well, mm-hmm. but it appears, at least from some of the recent science that um, in the laboratory, that they're not producing butyrate at quite the same levels that mm-hmm. that C species is. Mm-hmm. And then they've also seen that in Fecali bacterium B. It also has a gene that actually allows it to degrade mucus. Mm-hmm. And this is a That's gene hilarious. that the other two species don't have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one paper actually associated um so bacteria and IB with um atopic dermatitis as well. Mm. But that's only been one paper and, mm. and it's, so
0: it's tough to really say, you know, if it's really yeah. doing yeah. anything in that. But well, anyways, yeah. it's very interesting. No, I yeah. find that fascinating because it is, yeah, it's something that I I do see over and over and have seen mm. for some time. So yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it's
2: just really just kind of get higher and higher resolution. And yeah. at Microbe, we're really hoping probably in the next year or so that we're going to be at that strain level as well. Yeah. So probably more for the practitioners, this is going to be really interesting because then you're really going to be able to hopefully be able to start picking out strains that might
1: be playing a greater role in yeah. something and as more, opposed and to other more strains. of a detrimental role. Like we were even having a chat um when we met up for tea the other day yep. um before the podcast and we were talking about just even the difference between like low levels of butyrate, average levels of butyrate or moderate to high, but then really high levels of, you mm. know, butyrate and stuff like that. And obviously, you know, there's the potential that, you know, then that's inflammatory if it's too high. And and we were looking at like and even Acamancia, like there's a little bit of research now. Like I feel like that's been focused on probably as a whole, as this great one in the gut lining but then i'm starting to see a little bit of research coming through when it's really high mm. that it's not fantastic either like if yeah. see a lot of that. so like with the butyrate
2: too it's important to um, differentiate as well between the presence of the metabolite butyrate so yeah. some tests are actually measuring the actual mm. amount of butyrate in the stool yeah. mm-hmm. versus the gene potential mm-hmm. to produce butyrate and so you're right when people see high levels of butyrate actually in the stool that usually from what i've been reading in the literature it usually seems to be that it's a, more of an indication that your intestinal cells aren't absorbing that buter mm. very well. And I was just thinking, actually, I don't know if we actually covered this yet in the podcast. If you don't mind, I'm going to backtrack a, a little bit I do because it. I'm not sure how many much people understand what butyrate it is and and why it's really important. And also just in terms of um, what metabolites right. we're producing. Yeah. yeah. So basically, <laughs> the reason we're talking about fiber all the time and why it's so important is that when our bugs break down fiber, they're producing primarily something called short chain fatty acids. And there's three short-chain fatty acids they're producing, butyrate, propionate, and acetate. And all of these short-chain fatty acids are playing a really important role in maintaining our gut health. And so butyrate is one of the most Mm -hmm. well-studied short-chain fatty acids. And this has been shown, this is actually the number one energy source for our intestinal cells. So our intestinal cells, they need energy to be able to do all their cellular processes, maintain our intestinal cell barrier... And 70% of that energy that they're using is coming from the short-chain fatty acid butyrate. So Mm -hmm. if you're not producing enough butyrate, you're not Mm -hmm. able to feed your gut cells well enough. You also have um, that butyrate is also acting as a signaling molecule. So it's actually able to signal a lot of different receptors on our cells that um, end up having a lot of downstream effects. And a lot of them usually end up being suppressing inflammation Mm -hmm. and also um, help regulating our appetite. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's incredibly... It's amazing how widespread a role Mm. these short-chain fatty acids are actually playing in our physiology. I mean, they're interacting with our immune system. They're interacting with our metabolic system. I mean, it's just really widespread. And so what we're really seeing is that when people aren't producing a lot of these short-chain fatty acids, they're the ones that tend to end up having poor health. And healthy people tend to have a good production Mm -hmm. of this. But then you do end up with a problem where sometimes um, your cells aren't able to absorb the butyrate Mm -hmm. and it's not functioning the way it should and then you end up with high levels of butyrate in your stool Mm -hmm. and that is then usually just a sign that there's something wrong with that absorption Mm -hmm. but not necessarily that your bacteria are overproducing butyrate it's more that you're not able to absorb what's being produced Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. so and we're still learning so much Mm -hmm. about this and so at this point like we don't know if there's like if, you, if your bacteria can overproduce butyrate, um, it's, it's really, yeah, we just don't right. have enough information. And I think it's really going to depend on, you know, if you have a healthy gut versus an unhealthy gut. Like, if you don't have the ability to absorb the butyrate, mm-hmm. then, the, yeah, definitely that's not going to be a good thing if yeah. your bacteria are producing a lot. But if you do have the ability to absorb that butyrate, we don't know if there's really a bad part to having too much. Would you said that would go for the
0: other short chain fatty
2: acids as well. Um it's it's yeah, probably. Because mm-hmm. at this point we're still we're mm. still really learning about all the different roles they're playing and, yeah. and what is gonna be, you know, what's good and what's bad. And mm-hmm. so at this point it's it's still really, you know, a lot of learning that needs to get done. Yeah. And just trying to understand all the different roles they're playing. Like yeah. I mean, even just a couple of weeks ago, you know, I was reading papers that are finding new different receptors that, you know, like acetate is mm-hmm. able to to signal so like mm-hmm. it's feel, it's just yeah. incredible that you know like there's still so much we have to learn about how this is yeah. all interacting with all of our different systems
1: and i feel like i just yeah i think like we like in maybe a year's time if we did a podcast on short chain fatty acids and their function and just systemically like yes. I feel like at the moment like even when I explain it to my clients and I'm just trying to get them to eat a more fiber rich diet or and bring carbohydrates back in and all of that they've been on these long-term restrictive carbohydrate diets and I'm just just trying to explain at that basic level that the fiber and all of that feeds your short chain fatty acids and people are like well I don't give us stuff about short chain fatty acids <laughs> what do they do and I'm like I just give them this really basic rundown I'm like well you know they in control inflammation in, in your bowel and they f- it feeds you it feeds your bacteria and it looks after your gut lining and it's going to have you know I'm, I'm sure it's going to have some impact on your immune system and your hormone regulation massive immune system yeah and it's just impact. like it's, it's kind of like that's our like in layman's terms of explaining it like that's kind of our yeah. understanding at the moment but it's just like you know that if it's playing this much of a concentrated role at the gut level, that there's no way in how it's not playing a systemic role, but it's just mm. like waiting for all of that to unfold.
2: And then we do know it is actually playing a systemic role. And that is part mm. of what we have mm. already seen is that, you know, like when butyrate is activating some of these receptors, mm. they're producing, you know, like um, cytokines that are mm-hmm. suppressing inflammation and mm-hmm. those cytokines get distributed throughout the body. It's yeah. not just in your gut. Yeah. And you know, like acetate is mm. actually, um, most of the acetate that our gut produces actually enters into our blood circulation mm. is distributed throughout the body mm. and our propionate Most of that is used in the liver, and it's actually a really important regulator It's involved in um, gluconeogenesis. It's yeah. where you're packing away the glucose, yeah. you know, so yeah. it's, it's playing all these incredibly important roles systemically throughout our body we, I mean, it's just it's probably mm. playing more roles that we still don't even understand yeah. But that's again, yeah, and I guess the key bottom line for all of this is just that that's why fiber is so important in our diet is because when you don't feed your gut enough fiber, Mm -hmm. it's not producing those short chain fatty acids in enough abundance to be able to help our gut function normally and throughout the rest of our body to make sure that things are functioning the way they should. Mm -hmm. And then with protein... Protein is kind of a mixed bag, so when our gut microbes are breaking down protein, they can be producing short chain fatty acids, but usually at a much lower amount. Mm -hmm. And they can also be producing a lot of other molecules. And so some of these molecules can actually be beneficial. So some are going to be things like neurotransmitters. So we know some of our gut microbes can produce GABA, Mm -hmm. which is a really important neurotransmitter that um, is involved in depression and anxiety. and we can also pr- they can also produce a lot of different components that promote the production of serotonin by our gut cells. Mm-hmm. Um, they can also produce um, dopamine. I mean, there's, it's, it's crazy everything that our gut microbes can produce. But on the other side, they can also produce um, molecules that aren't necessarily as good for our health. They can produce things like lipopolysaccharides, which yep. we know at elevated levels in our bloodstream um, are heavily linked with a lot of metabolic diseases. They can mm-hmm. also produce... Um, Trimethylamine, which Mm. is a compound that has been very strongly linked with heart disease. Um, There's hydrogen sulfide, ammonia. A lot of these uh, compounds that at very high levels can actually exacerbate inflammation in the gut. And Mm -hmm. so... That's why it's just very important to have that balance where, you know, some protein mm. degradation is good exactly. and it's necessary, but when it gets to be too much and you're not getting that short chain fatty acid production as well,
1: mm. it's going
2: to start throwing things out of balance. And when that happens over the long term, that's when I think people start to see a lot more problems occurring.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, It really highlights again that, um, as we were talking about earlier, that back to basics and that importance of diversity and a really great foundational intake of, of whole foods so that you are creating diversity within the gut and all of these these different processes like they have important roles it's just that when certain things get upregulated too high or downregulated um because of imbalances that's where we end up in trouble exactly exactly mm.
1: Mm-hmm. I think too. Like I suppose, like since we're having so much focus on fiber, I think there's probably going to be a lot of people going, "Well, how much fiber am I meant to be eating?" Yes. And I think it's like I like it's not, like I feel like it's not a lot, but I'm a massive veggie and you know grain <laughs> yeah. eater, so I'm just like. But just for everyone out there listening, like the the recommended, and this is recommended based on you know nutrition Australia standards. I think it probably should be a little bit more, but it's 25 to 30 grams mm. of fiber a day for an adult. And I can honestly say. That I think there's a very large majority of people out there who don't come close to that. Like, would you yes. agree with that? Yeah, definitely. There was a study just a couple of years ago by Cyro that actually did
2: like a little census of the Australian population, and they found that in on average Australians are typically getting around you know 15 to 20 grams of fiber per day in their diet, and you know coming well short of yeah. that 25 to 30 gram. And we've actually also read papers that say that even though 30 grams is kind of what's the Australian National Dietary Mm -hmm. Guidelines... Um, if you actually want to be consuming enough fiber to actually benefit to gut. benefit your gut and to um, reduce the risk of developing chronic disease, the uh, recommendation is actually thirty eight grams of fiber Woo! per day. <laughs> so, <laughs> just and which is something just, that you know most people are you know they're yeah. not even getting half of that. Yeah. And so it's it's really important. And I, I mean, after reading all this research over the last four years, I, I kind of have reached this conclusion that if we could get everybody to eat like 38 grams of fiber per day <laughs> we would probably solve so many health
1: issues but in our it's, world it's just like even oh when, God, i so agree i to totally agree like and just even when we look at just the role of like oh without getting into the different types of fiber so let's just totally take it even away from the gut micro like my, my you know microbial perspective and just even just think about fiber in terms of toxin removal and mm. you know toning a healthy bowel just from a muscle perspective yeah. smooth muscle perspective and like, God, we could go on about fiber for bloody ages. Like, but it's like, very important And though. the different types of fiber. Like we've got soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. So if you, you know, when people are just even suffering with just you know, they, you know, the general bowel issues like, you know, like diarrhea or constipation, sometimes like it's just a mixture of the wrong types that were too much of mm. one type of fiber and then just, you know, really increasing that dessert, you know, diversity across the types of, you know, vegetables and carbohydrates that they're consuming mm. and mm. sometimes pulling out the concentrated sugars. Cause I think I was reading somewhere the other day and I, I won't like quote it a hundred percent, but it's something like, yeah, the average Australian gets 15 to 18 grams of fiber and something like, I think it was 50 to 80 grams of sugar. Do you know what I mean? And it's just even Mm. understanding the difference. Like, yeah, most all carbohydrates break down to sugar. We're talking about just concentrated sugar mm. sources so they're coming from simple sugars and that's where that's, the, our body's that's where our body's that. absorbing yeah. but it's not coming from the breakdown of a complex carbohydrate so there's there's a big issue even just in the types exactly. of sugar that we're getting and the types of carbs that we're getting so mm-hmm.
0: and yes. as always there's a very much i think a disconnect from an educational point of view i always talking about how there's just we, we see it in clinic all the time people coming in and their actual general understanding of what constitutes fiber what constitutes mm. Mm. what we would call complex carbohydrate um, versus, say, something that's more of a simple sugar um, and how that plays out. You, you, to me, and I think to all, all of us, we probably think, oh, yeah, foundational stuff, but there's a real lack of understanding exactly. and education. So you, we're kind of, in some ways, we're probably preaching converted the people that listen to this podcast. So we're always saying really, share it with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think we can all think of lots of people that we know that there, there's a very – at the, the core, a very um, much a lack of understanding of what, oh, exactly. what those factors are. And that's where it's a real frustration and a shame and we're getting out as much information as possible. And I think everything you're talking about, hopefully becoming more well-known, more well-streamed in, in that mainstream media so people are seeing it on their news and their current affairs and, and, and exactly. seeing this information mm. going, oh, wow, wow, this actually is related to – how I feel outside of maybe like my upset tummy. Um, you know, maybe maybe little Johnny has got dermatitis because of what I'm feeding him. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, and I mean, diet plays such an important role. And, you know, like with the gut microbiome, you know, we've been seeing throughout all the studies that diet is one of the primary influencing factors. I mean, there's a lot of other factors that influence our microbiome. But diet is one of those primary ones, and it's ones that we all it's – it's a factor we all have control over, and so it's something mm-hmm. that we can modulate. And so other factors, you know, like our genetics and maybe the medications we're on, you know, it's a lot harder to be able to change that, but we can change our diet. So that's why this mm-hmm. is so exciting because yeah. it's like, you know, we really do have the power to take control of our health. Of our health and- <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: definitely. I also – scribbled down before when we we're talking which is kind of deviating but about parasites because i think i know i know this sort of it's something that microbe definitely looks at to a point but i'm interested in, in your thoughts with parasites because there's so much of uh Yeah, I I would say, you know, we obviously have a certain amount of parasites perhaps we're living lovely and symbiotically with and there's a lot of questions around certain types of parasites and whether they are in quotation marks good, um, asymptomatic versus, um, causing us symptoms and causing us issues. And is that something that you have seen more of coming through in literature? And I know, I mean, they're even being used from a treatment point of view now too.
2: Yeah. Um, well I'd say probably the best studied parasite or it's not, I don't even know if it's right, the correct terms of parasite really, but Mm. it's blastocystis Uh and that's probably one of the most well-known ones. Yeah. And it's, it's incredibly controversial because, you know, I think in the past, People, you know, would always, you know, test people that had diarrhea symptoms and mm-hmm. say, oh, if there's blastocystis there, that's it, because that's, that's a eukaryote, that's, that's yeah. a multicellular pathogen, or they call it a pathogen that doesn't belong. But now, as more and more research is being done, we're actually seeing that a lot of healthy people have blastocystis yes. as mm-hmm. well, and that a lot of people that end up presenting symptoms... They might have had other bugs that could have been causing their symptoms, it's just typically the physicians, once they saw blastocystis, stopped looking for right. any other cause. And so now that physicians are getting better educated and realizing blastocystis might not actually be causing anything and they're looking for other um, problems that could be causing the gastrointestinal distress, they're actually mm-hmm. seeing that there, there a lot of times are other problems. And so. Um, there was even a recent paper that came out, which is really interesting, is saying that blastocystis is actually perhaps playing a beneficial mm, role in our yeah. gut. And that it's actually kind of acting as like a top predator where, you know, if you look at like ecology, a lot of times you kind of need like a couple top predators in your ecosystem to keep the rest of the the uh, members of that ecosystem at a even distribution. And that people that had blastocystis tended to have higher diversity in their gut microbiome than people that didn't have blastocystis. Mm. And so, so yeah, so hypothesizing that, you know, Mm. it might be playing that type of a role in the gut. And so, I mean, the bottom line is we really don't know what role it's playing in the gut right Mm. now, but we're learning a lot. And Mm. it's likely that it's not playing a detrimental role in our gut, that it is something that um, it's been with us for millennia
1: and um,
2: it's it's much more common than we previously suspected. I think
1: that's so good for people mm, to hear as well because we spend yeah I agree we spend a lot of time with our clients and obviously you know I would like to say probably I would say probably one in three clients that you test have come up with like you know some strain or diet or strain's the right word for it but dientamoeba or blastocystis or something and they're so freaked out by it and you spend so much we spend a lot of time counselling our clients just being like this so many people have or come into contact with these parasites and yes, sometimes your body may get rid of them or you may think you've gotten rid of them. they just don't show up in a sample. You know, that's always up for debate as well, but it's just like, I, I know, and we've kind of been saying this to people for quite a few years, This whole, like, once you find something in your gut that is potentially considered pathogenic, you've got to go in guns blazing to try and wipe that out is not the correct approach. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. it's about establishing an ecosystem that all supports itself. And if that is with or without a Mm -hmm. parasite, it's not the the be all and end
0: all, right? And we do see that too with retesting because we get, um, I guess we're in a good position where we can do that with some clients. So you will see that you'll work with them and you'll see these beautiful changes um, from a bacteria perspective and also then, of course, from a symptom perspective mm. and they're feeling amazing. And then you retest and... Mr. Parasite back- still Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Oh, well. But all these other markers are fine. Mm-hmm. So it's then coaching them through that and going, well, in your case, as, as an individual, this is probably fine for you. But then I must say I've seen on the other side of the scale where... Um, you you do go in and you do perhaps treat inverted commas for blasto um, and they do but again it's in context there's so many other factors but they they feel better and then you retest and then it's gone Mm. so it's like you know are we just dealing with a different type of subtype here who knows at Mm -hmm. this point but I I think there's a lot of um, fear around Mm. um, seeing seeing parasites and I say parasites. It's a very broad term. That's yeah. Like blasto is very controversial. Yeah. So. Yep. Exactly. Mm. I
2: mean, that is a good point that you raised, though, is that's something that we are seeing is that there's many different subtypes of mm. blastocystis. Mm. And so that is one of the hypotheses that's out there is that maybe it's only mm. one of those subtypes that's causing yeah. problems. But yeah. again, we just don't have the research right now to mm. back that up. And yep. so we just don't know yet.
0: Yeah, definitely. Cool. Cool. Well, I think we, we kind of deviated from the list. But when I had a look over <laughs> yeah, there, we covered yeah. it everything yeah, definitely um was there anything else that you wanted to ask or was there anything um yourself um, you I guess I, I would like to add, add <laughs> I wouldn't mind adding
2: one little quick thing It's just for people you know when if you do get your gut microbiome profile done you know not to get hung up on those species mm. because a lot of times we hear a lot about you know the benefits of having you know like bifidobacterium or Faecalibacterium in our gut and a lot of times people can get real upset if they don't have those species in their gut and the key that um, we're really finding is that it's much more important to understand what your gut is doing. It's that function over form, basically, Mm -hmm. is that, you know, we're seeing, you know, geographically and globally, everybody has a very unique gut microbiome. You're going to have different species inhabiting the guts of people that live here in Australia versus people Mm -hmm. that live in Europe versus people that live in Asia. But the bottom line is that we're seeing that most of these Different gut microbiotas, they all have the same underlying functions. Everybody's mm-hmm. gut needs to be breaking down fiber, breaking down protein, producing short chain fatty acids. and so people should really be thinking more about how their gut is functioning as opposed to necessarily who is there. Yeah. and you know being able to look like you know like a gene level, type analyses where you're actually able to say, oh, yeah, I've got, you know, a good number Mm. of butyrate producers, or I've got a good number of, you know, propionate producers, you know, or I'm not, I don't have to worry because I'm not, you know, producing a lot of, I don't have a lot of genes that produce trimethylamine. I think that's going to end up giving us a little bit more informative information going into the future and i think as the research progresses we're going to start seeing a lot more of these these kind of key metabolites kind of
0: coming out mm. that are
2: playing a really mm. important role in interacting with our body and influencing our health mm, yeah.
0: that's such an important point i know even um you mentioned about bifido there like that was something that we and you brought up with mm. um ken about seeing a lot with microbial, like a very uh, low growth of bifido if anything on just test after test Mm. coming back and he was just saying that it's just a presentation that's being seen commonly in our Mm -hmm. society and it doesn't mean that it's not actually there it's just that it it's um it's just on such a, a low end scale and it's i don't know it sort of brings up questions doesn't it is it a representation of our our diet as a culture or is it just about where it sits in relationship to every everyone else that's hanging out in the microbiota. Well I what think what your thoughts are on that.
2: Yeah. Mm. So I think with bifidobacterium there definitely mm. is a little bit of a maybe a slight misconception that we should all have high levels yeah, of it. I think so. So it's basically it's mm. one of the first, you know, bugs that colonizes the infant gut. Mm. And that's the predominant um my, you know, microbiota that's in the infant gut. But mm. as we get older we don't get as, you know, that bifidobacteria leaves because most bifidobacteria really, you know, thrives on those human milk oligosaccharides. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we get weaned and we start eating solid food, you know, most of those bifidobacterium species are going to leave because we're not feeding them. And that's Mm -hmm. normal. That's what actually happens as you Mm -hmm. become an adult is you don't see high levels of bifidobacterium. Mm -hmm. Um, We do have a few species that are in the adult human gut. Um, Bifidobacterium adolescentis, Mm -hmm. bifidobacterium bifidum tend to be more the higher prevalence ones, mm-hmm. but again, they're not usually there're at really high abundance levels mm-hmm. you know yeah. it's usually they're they're one of the lo- the lower level ones, mm-hmm. and I think part of that is the fact that we're looking at it in the context of everybody who's there mm-hmm. so before most of the testing was done just culture based and yeah. mm-hmm. you know if you just have you know a few cells of bifido or a few in cells a sample, of lactobacillus yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's going to grow you know and mm-hmm. it's really hard to um you know that the quantification they do with culture based is really different because you know it's going to depend Definitely. on the media they're using on the you know the conditions they're using how much oxygen is mm-hmm. available there's so many factors that are going to impact how well that grows and how much they quantify on that plate mm-hmm. Versus just sequencing all the DNA that's present, I think it's giving us a little bit more realistic picture of what those actual distributions are. Yeah. And we're seeing that in the context of everything else that's in our gut. Bifidobacterium is typically very low, and a lot of people, you know, it's just not even there. And that's that's not a bad thing. It's just normal. And it's just, we have other species that are filling those roles. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like lactic acid bacteria. There's other, there's a lot of other types of lactic acid bacteria Uh. that can be producing lactic acid. And so yeah it's not yeah so you don't you don't see it as a problem
0: if it's not there at all
2: no definitely not and I don't think people should expect Mm. to see it there Mm. and
0: especially not at high levels Mm -hmm. it's just fascinating for us too because we've we've used different labs as well um and it's interesting seeing like the difference of what you see um in I I guess it's sort of it's the different methods of testing as well isn't it as things have Mm. changed and evolved but um and it's yeah, really, it's com- like, yeah.
2: i mean, it's really comparing apples to oranges. I know, right? So- exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. But it's always, but then when I even think about that, it's always generally on that lower presentation mm-hmm. side. So you no, know, it's fascinating. Oh, but-, but it's another rabbit hole I'm being pulled down. Like, so what about this? And what about that? I'm like, no, stop. I'm sorry, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm about to I'm okay. ask
1: about lactobacillus. I know, like shag- I can tell about lactobacillus too.
0: Well, maybe, I mean, we would obviously love to have you back and I think that's something that, there's a lot that we've skimmed over because we wanted to sort of start with an overview, yeah. but I, I think both of us would love, like we've got a, a thousand different points, <laughs> but there's probably just picking certain strains and just going, yeah. okay, let's let's talk about this particular strain today, yeah. I think that would be wonderful, um, plus a billion other things. But, yep. yeah, we would love to to hear from everyone that listens as well. I'm sure they'll have some areas that we've covered today and they're like,
1: oh, I want to hear a little bit more yep. about this. And yep. Yeah. I yeah. feel like, yeah, I've got heaps, but let's. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so thank you so much <laughs> for coming you. on. I really appreciate it. It's been fascinating. I could honestly sit here <laughs> yeah, no, and no, just no. chat with just, you all day. I was
1: listening to you speak before and I was just looking over at Jess and we're both just like this, just staring at you. <laughs> Well, it's nice to get to geek out
0: with you guys. I have
2: to say I don't get to do this very often, so it's really fun.
0: Thank you. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And as we said, if you do have any questions at all about Mm. what we've talked about today or if it's brought up some areas that you'd like us to delve deeper into, Mm -hmm. please let us know. Yep. You can contact us by email or you can contact us on our social media. All of that information is in the show notes. Other than that, I think that's
1: it. That's it.
0: Um, As always, to share the episode. Get it out there. We've talked about a lot today that needs to be shared. Share it to
1: your friends that aren't eating enough fiber. Exactly. (laughs) Share it to anyone on a carbohydrate-restrictive diet. All right.
0: Thank you and have a wonderful weekend.
1: Thanks, guys. Bye.